0: Some of you are wondering uh, where Dwayne is today, why I'm standing up here at this point. Yesterday afternoon, I got a phone call from a strange voice I didn't recognize, and it said, I'm (laughs) Dwayne. I'm not well. And from that moment on, I was preparing to come and preach this morning. And uh, we need to be praying for Dwayne. You know he's sick if he's passing on preaching, one of his great loves of his life. And uh, you need to be praying for me as well as I come and prepare and speak to you today. Uh, Instead of Acts chapter 8, we're going to be going into Matthew chapter 5. Community group leaders, if you haven't heard that news yet, if you've been preparing for leading your groups through Acts 8, put that off a week. We're going to do Acts 8 next week. And uh, if you want to listen real carefully, you can do Matthew chapter 5 or do a prayer time or do whatever else you want to do in your groups this week. If you're wondering how you uh, prepare for a message like this, you get a call and suddenly have to put something together for the next day. Uh, Apologies to any of the Karen church who were here a few weeks ago. This was a message that I had prepared for them. They started a series in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, Dwayne and Marcio and Close are taking them through. And I was the one who got to preach the first sermon on that. So we looked at Matthew 5, verses 1 to 10, which is the Beatitudes section. So when Dwayne called me yesterday, it was, okay... What do I have that I can share with you today? And so spent time yesterday, obviously, re-preparing that and thinking it through that it's appropriate for you here this morning. And so we're in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn your Bibles there, we'll have some of these scriptures up on the screen in a few moments. Uh, Before we get there, I just want to start with a story to kind of get our thinking and our hearts moving a little bit in the direction of where Matthew 5 and really the Sermon on the Mount takes us. It's the story of a man by the name of Gordon Maxwell. Gordon was a missionary to India many years ago. And as a part of his ministry there, as he had been there ministering to several other groups, he began to move into a new group with a new language. And as he went, he went to one of the Hindu scholars, and he approached him and said, I need to learn the language. Would you be my teacher? And the man said, no. I will not teach you our language. For to teach you my language means I will become a Christian. And Gordon said, oh, you've misunderstood me. All I want to do is learn your language. And the scholar said to him, no, I will not teach you my language. For I know to live with you, I will become a Christian. What a powerful example of someone who followed Christ in such a way that Kind of the testimony of his life had become. People that spent time with him understood what it was to be a follower of Jesus. And I think that's a great way to understand what it is to be a follower of Jesus. To be someone who so understands him, to be someone who... Understands what it is to be saved by faith and that process that Jesus begins within our life through that faith process by his spirit engaging with our heart and with our mind to draw us to become more and more reflection of the one whom we follow. His heart beats in our heart. His mind begins to shape and transform our mind and we begin to reflect the things that he does and we begin to speak the way that he does and we begin to share the truth of his gospel in word and the conduct of our lives. We are the reflection of the grace and truth that Jesus brings into this world by his gospel. And in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 in what is normally called the Sermon on the Mount, As Jesus was beginning his ministry, and I believe Matthew puts it right close to the beginning of his gospel, because it's such an important set of teaching by Jesus, Jesus is laying a foundation. He's laying this foundation about what will shape his followers, about what his followers can expect if they are going to be part of his kingdom, if they're going to be part of his life, if they're going to be joining him and understanding what God is giving them and gifting them in the whole process of salvation. And so Matthew 5 to 7, maybe you need to start coming to the Karen services and following up on what's going on through the Sermon on the Mount, a a crucial, very important piece of teaching by Jesus, our Savior. And as he begins that sermon, he begins by setting the stage with these, uh, well, eight summary thoughts in these first ten verses. In Matthew chapter five, verse one, he sets the stage for it. We read in Matthew five one, it says, "When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them." What a great scene that is! You know, Jesus by this point. After, you know, just a very short while in his public ministry, crowds have begin, begun to follow him. They have wanted to hear more from him. And as he's traveling in Galilee and he's beginning that ministry, they're following him and he ends up in this mountainside setting... And it says that when he saw them, he went up on this mountain. I think very particularly just kind of set himself aside and allow people who really wanted to come that day to come. And it says they followed him. They followed him up there on the mountain, and Jesus sat down, and he began to teach them. People who wanted to hear, and then Jesus saying, and I want to tell you. Jesus is saying, that's, that's the heart of Jesus. It still is his heart for us today. For any who would seek him, he wants to infuse into your life an understanding of who he is. Grant you his grace and his truth. And Jesus is always extending that invitation to come and listen and to follow. And that's the scene that happens for this sermon and then in verses 3 through 10, and usually in your scriptures, they're set aside in a very particular format because it's more poetry than prose. It's not like kind of this sermon today where I'm, I just kind of stood, well, in some ways it is. I started off by telling you a story. I told you something to try and help draw you in and get your minds thinking in a certain way. You know, a story of a man who kind of talked or showed in his life what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Well, Jesus is doing the same thing here. He has this set of eight summary statements. Might be nine, depends what you do with verses 11 and 12. We're just going to 10 this morning. And in those summary statements, Jesus is giving you these memorable set of thoughts. Laying a foundation for the rest of the sermon. Before we read them, I'm just going to make a few observations for you this morning. You've got your Bibles open, some of you, you can already read ahead. I'm not going to put the verses up, but I want you to realize a few things about what this set of Beatitudes is all about. First, I want you to note that this sermon is about his kingdom. What Jesus is going to be sharing is about the kingdom of heaven. And these introductory verses, these beatitudes, begin and end by saying that these are the things you need to know about what it is to have access to the kingdom of heaven. The first beatitude ends with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last beatitude in verse 10 says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to have a sense of what it is to belong to the kingdom of heaven, look at these beatitudes. These are descriptive of what your life is intended to be in the fullness of your salvation, of coming to an understanding of what it is to be a follower of Christ. It's not a sermon about rules, although many commands are given throughout this sermon. This sermon is more a sermon about attitudes, about our hearts. It's about our relationship with God. And sometimes you have to move a little bit past what looks like a command And understand that there's an attitude there. It's not the command first. It's the attitude that leads to a response of life as a follower of Christ. So it's about being part of his kingdom. The second is that these introductory statements, as I said before, are more poem than prose. Each line follows a very specific pattern. Each one has this sense of being blessed. In fact, that's where the word beatitude has come from. Beatitude comes from Old Latin or Old French. I'm not a scholar. I read that. <laughs> the word is beatus in Latin. So each of these statements begins with that beatus, beatitude, comes into English. And beatus is that word Blessed. It's an emphasis on what God is bringing into our lives. And that In English, we've got the word beatitude. Uh, it's, it's been convenient because in English, we're able to say that these are the beatitudes, not the do attitudes. Because it is a nice description to remind us that these aren't a set of commands for us. This is a set of understandings of what Christ intends for us to be in relationship with him what he intends our character to become. But its Beatitudes is kind of, we've made it up, and it, it's nice to remember that way. And each of the Beatitudes has three parts to it. So before we read them, just so you can kind of track with me while we're reading each one, and we'll come back to that. Each one begins with this word, blessed. Each of the phrases begins that way. It was interesting when I was preaching at the Karen Church. I talked to Closey ahead of time, because I said close, you know, just... Is there any translation things i need to be aware of and he said oh well he said you know as i said what about the word blessed he said well we really don't have a word for blessed in karen so i was like oh like that's eight eight times and i talk about it i said well how does the verse start does it start when it says blessed what does it say He said, well, that actually doesn't come till the end of the verse. (laughs) Just because the way their grammar. So I was just like, okay, we got issues already. Because the way I think about this is totally from an English mindset. Right? But he trans... Anyway, I don't know what he said. We worked it out. He translated to the folks. For English, though, each sentence starts with the word blessed. It's able to follow that. It's a word that means... Because we talk about being blessed... If we talk about being blessed, we kind of think that favor has been granted to us. It's a little more than just that of receiving something. To be blessed is a word that means truly and deeply happy and content, that you're full of blessing. It's a person whose life has meaning and there's a hope, there's a peace, there's a joy that goes along with that. It's a person who's able to smile and be content. Whatever is coming upon their lives because there's a foundation that seems to be within them that gives them a confidence for future. They're blessed. They have a foundation to life. Some translations put it this way. It will be well with you. Right? It will be well with you who are poor in spirit. It will be well with you who are the meek. It will be well with you. My grandmother lived with us for the several years at near the end of her life. She was a wonderful lady. She lived in our basement, and we were, I was able to go down and spend time with her. And She was just a very gracious lady, but she loved Jesus. And just in a very casual way, so deeply appreciated that. And she lived at our house until really her health came to a place that we just couldn't give her the care that she needed, and she moved into a nursing home when she was about 95. And at 95 and following, I can remember going and visiting her. And so often as I would be there talking with her, she would talk about how sad she was for the young people at the nursing home. And I was kind of like, well, like grandma, like because I'm picturing the nursing staff, or like she's like, oh no, like, like, and she would point to the other other folks that were there, like the people that are 90, these young people that are gathered around her. And she just said, some of them are just so sad. Some of them just have life so hard. And my grandmother confined to a wheelchair, some respiratory problems. She's had a great contentment in her life. She was blessed. Right? She understood what it was to have a contentment in who Christ was for her and who she was in God, even though her body was failing her. To me, it's an example of blessedness. And that's what Jesus is talking about, blessedness. You will find this blessedness in your life. It's related to the Old Testament idea of shalom. In the Hebrew la- language, the word for peace, shalom, is a very broad word. It, it's really just that same idea. It's shalom is a peace, it's a contentment, it's a, it's a sense of well-being that falls upon people. And Jesus, as he begins his sermon about what it looks like and how you can be known as one of his followers, begins with this word, blessed. That when you know Jesus, when you understand what his kingdom is about, that in your hearts and in your lives you can have an experience of a contentment and of a well-being in a lot of different areas. And Jesus is saying, here are the people who are really happy, who are blessed. So, That's the first part of the poem, blessed, 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 eight times. The second part of each statement is a description of character or an attitude of the people who are blessed. He gives often just a single word, but he also broadens it out. The descriptions, though, are not what we might expect, as so often in Jesus, he kind of has a different view on culture and social uh, constructs. In our lives in the world, we're told that people are most happy are the strong, are the popular, are the wealthy. They are the people who seem to get their own way, who don't need other people, who stand alone. Or they're the ones who found their one and only true loves. You know, that sense of having found their other. You know, and so they found someone who is going to fulfill for them everything in their romantic relationships that secure happiness. Jesus has a whole other set of characteristics and attitudes. He talks about those that we often see as weakness. He talks about being poor, of being in mourning, of being humble, of being thirsty, of being hungry. He says these are the things that are going to be identified as blessings in your life. They don't sound strong and confident, but Jesus says they're the things that are going to mark those that follow him. We'll talk about why as we look at each one. So blessing, the characteristic or attitude, and the third part of each statement is a promised gift. It's a promise in what God is going to be giving for them. It's something to be looked forward to, but it's also something that we already receive into our lives. There's that sense of a a present tense and also a future realization in each. The gifts that come from Jesus for those who are going to follow him. They're gifts of position, of where we find ourselves in his kingdom or in his presence. They're also gifts of provision of what will be our experience and what uh, God will help us with or what Christ promises us in, in knowing him. And so that's the second observation. You look for the poetry. The last observation before we read these is to understand, and really for the whole Sermon on the Mount, if you're look, ever really looking at it, is that it's not so much commands. It's not about commands to be followed to get into heaven. Jesus isn't kind of introducing a new legalism here. He's not introducing something that says, okay, if you make yourselves these things, then that's how you get saved. No, it's still a gospel of grace. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount makes the law so onerous that no one can keep it. You know, Jesus says, you've heard the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees have this level. They say you shouldn't even, you know, you shouldn't hate or you shouldn't murder. And Jesus says, I say, you shouldn't even hate. You know, it's the, the things of your mind that, that convict you before a holy God and a Father. Jesus elevates all that and says, there's no way that by following the law that you are going to be fully redeemed and brought into relationship with me. And the Beatitudes really start in that same way. They're presenting a picture of someone who has embraced grace and has understood what faith is going to be and understands the blessedness of salvation and that it is a gift from God that comes to us and that God will will work in our lives and in our hearts this amazing work of grace for us and so these aren't about what we have to do to be saved it's so much about what it is to be saved and what our hearts and our lives can begin to experience and enjoy now and also in in eternity as we uh, look forward to all that we have with God and Christ. So as we look at these, and now we'll read them, I just want to review for you that it's, these are, here's what it's like to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Here's what it's like to be truly happy and share in the promises of Jesus. And it's not about how to be saved. It's what it looks like to be saved. And so he's painting this picture for us. And so we'll read them together now. Matthew 5, verses 3 to 10. Jesus began to teach those who had gathered on the mountain, began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will inherit the earth. Again, on first first read, they don't sound like happy, contented people. (laughs) Poor, mourning, hungering, thirsting. But look at the promises of position and provision that comes from Jesus. Comfort, hope, people of purpose, possessing the kingdom and the earth. They sound like people who have found a place, who have found a place of belonging. What is all the connections? That's what we'll start to put together. Again, remember, Jesus isn't telling him how to become blessed person, but sharing how being blessed in relationship with him, we become like what God has designed for us to become. And as we look at them one by one, I mean, each one of these, there have been books, there's been sermons on every single beatitude and fleshing them out in a whole lot of ways, but Jesus gave them to us as a package. And I often think sometimes we need to look at things in this way, and so as we do this, think of it more as a composite picture. Have you ever seen those pictures where you have, kind of, you, you lay them on one by one, and each layer adds another color, it adds another detail, so then when you have all the layers put together, you have this beautiful portrait, a beautiful dyna- dynamic of, what, of what, uh, what is supposed to come to life, but each page has specific details. I think that's what the Beatitudes are like. There's details that we need to embrace, but it's really a composite picture of what Christ intends for us and is, is granting us in relationship with himself. So each one we'll talk about briefly. We, we won't go into a whole lot of detail, but rather let them kind of layer on them this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit can be a confusing phrase. We know what it is to be poor. To literally have very little money or no money. More, it really in its broadest sense, it means we have no resources. It means we are not able to supply for our needs, is what poverty is. Poverty is, is when we're just kind of stripped away of, of being able to amount uh, up any kind of resource. And when Jesus says you're poor in spirit, it means that you have no spiritual resources. You can't provide for your own security, for your own eternal hope. Being poor in spirit, you recognize you're spiritually bankrupt in and of yourself. Ultimately, to be poor in spirit means you know you need a Savior. It means you need, you know you need God in your life. You've recognized that when you've looked within, you can't find the solutions to the eternal problems. I mean, much of the world view that we live in is that very thing. Much of the world we live in somehow seems to think that if we just look inside enough, if I just look deep within myself, there is a goodness, there is a reality that's within there, that there is a health that I can find somehow within that I can draw out. Whereas Scripture says the very opposite, you are broken. That sin has caused this great divide in your life and you have fallen from grace with the one who ultimately knows you perfectly, God, the creator. And it's only in him, it's in that external help that we can find wholeness and beauty. And that begins when I recognize how spiritually bankrupt I am. And as I recognize that bankruptcy, Jesus is able to come alongside and say, I have a solution. I've given myself to pay for that sin. And I'm giving an invitation into eternal life. Eternal life is that eternal relationship with God. It's faith. It's grace. And the promise is, yours will be the kingdom of heaven. And recognizing that bankruptcy and recognizing your need of a Savior, there is a Savior who will come alongside and say, Yes, I am here for you and in faith and in grace will embrace you and draw you into my everlasting kingdom. That's the blessing of your bankruptcy. And I I need to find myself really living in that place so often to cry out again and again, Oh God, I I am broken, I am poor in spirit. And I need your healing touch. I need your salvation within my life. It's connected with the second. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning is that sense that comes when we have experienced loss. We perhaps think mourning most intensely through the times of death, through grieving of a father, of a mother, of a friend. Last Sunday I was at my daughter's church out in Langley. And the pastor had to begin that service with two announcements. One was that a man, 75 years old, who was one of their ushers most Sundays, had passed away unexpectedly that week. And as he announced it, there was just kind of a groan that came from the congregation. Just a dearly loved man. And then he had to make another announcement that a three-year-old little boy had passed away that week in their family. Oh, just an ache in the family a mourning that came upon them. And I just, I prayed for the pastor because as he said, what, what do we say after those kind of announcements? And God blessed that congregation just in a very unique and special way last week. You know, mourning is that heaviness, it's a sorrow that we feel because we can't get back something. We've lost something which has meant so much to us. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn. And I think it's in context with this poverty of spirit. That there's a mourning when our sin overwhelms us and our relationships fail us. And our inner darkness grieves us. And Jesus says, that's... That's a place that my followers find themselves in because they recognize the darkness and the, the, all that they have lost in this world because of their sin. And he says, that's when I can comfort you. That's when I come alongside you and grant you my comfort. And he, ultimately, comfort comes by his presence. And by his spirit, he says, you are not alone. You're not alone in those times. And that's what it is to be a follower of mine. Number three, blessed are the meek or the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness or humility is is not something that we often hold up in esteem. You know, we, we associate meekness with weakness. We often think of humbleness. Really more, we often think of false humility. You know, we think of people who are sometimes arrogant because they have a false humility. They tell you how humble they are. And as they're telling you that, we recognize you're not humble, right? Or there's a a false humility where we just put ourselves down and we belittle ourselves. Now, meekness or humility is really the opposite of someone who's proud, acting as though they deserve everything, willing to take credit for things or credit for things they haven't done or to kind of step over other people. But really, the truly humble person is the one who finds their security, finds their peace in knowing that Jesus has loved them, that Jesus gives them identity, that Jesus is the one that has granted them a future. And in following him, there's a humility that says, I can put others first, that I can have a heart that says, I look outside myself. And meekness is a a great strength at times that says, I will look to the benefit of others. I won't always have to put myself forward. I am confident enough in who I am and my position in Christ that I can therefore serve and I can minister to others. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We think it's the opposite. Blessed are the strong. They'll No, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, because ultimately their gift and their position is that we will rule with him in his eternal kingdom. That we are part of his kingdom that is over all things. You're part of that which is eternal and blessed. Blessed are those who are hunger, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Hungering and thirsting. We, we understand that. I don't need to work at creating hunger and thirst. I've, I've never had to say to myself, I better make myself hungry. You know, have you ever had to do that? Say, wow, boy, it's almost time. I better make myself hungry so that I'll eat. You can tell I've never had a problem like that. Right? And as Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's really that same thing. He said, blessed are you when righteousness has so embraced you. And what is righteousness? It's the presence of Jesus. We are clothed with his righteousness, that we stand forgiven before God in his righteousness. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for the righteousness that you possess, when you have tasted it and you see how sweet and how powerful and how joyful this is in your life, and you say, Oh Lord, I need more of that righteousness. And what's his promise? You will be filled. You will be filled. When you hunger and thirst for that which Jesus alone can give, he says, I will grant it to you. And he fills us as he speaks to us in his word and by his spirit and his power and in our fellowship together as a people in worship as we come, as we hunger and thirst for his presence. He says, I will meet you. I will be there with you and for you. And you will find yourself as a blessed person. Then he says, blessed are those are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. To show mercy means to not respond to someone else's hurtful action with anger or revenge. It means to show kindness when you could be cruel or harsh. It's not our natural responses. I mean, my natural response is when I get pushed, I want to push back. If you hurt me, I want to hurt you back. But Jesus says, blessed are are the merciful. Blessed are those who are able to draw back and say, oh, there is a pain and an anguish in those who surround me that seek to hurt me, and I need to look for their goods. And you are blessed are the merciful. Why? For you will be shown mercy. See, I am able to show mercy only when I recognize the mercy that has been shown to me. God's great mercy has poured into and over my life I mean anyone who has asked God to forgive him to forgive them of their sins who has gone to God and said oh Lord before your throne I have sinned before you and then I've received his mercy I've received his forgiveness in my heart and my life and I am broken and I am filled in that same moment I am broken by my sin that I, would, that I would so insult and so belittle the grace that God has shown me. And I'm filled with his love that he forgives. And by his mercy. And Jesus said, blessed are you when you live in that place of knowing mercy and showing mercy to someone else to know God's love and holiness in your life and show his love and holiness to someone else. It ties in right with the next uh, beatitude. For he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will, see, they will see God. I think it's a great temptation in hearing this beatitude to think that somehow purity is in my hands to create. I need to make myself pure. You know, if I can become pure, then God will grant me A vision of who he is, but it's the very opposite. When I've known God's mercy, when I understand God's presence in my life is where purity comes from. When the Lord cleanses me, when he lifts me up, he makes me pure. And in that being made pure, it's then that I can see him. It's the experience of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he goes into the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and the glory fills the temple. And Isaiah's response is, woe is me, I am undone. For in the presence of God's holiness, Isaiah sees the wretchedness, the sin of his life. But God's response is, he takes the coal from the altar and he places it on his lips and he says, there is purity. And I will make you pure. And it's in that moment that Isaiah sees God. This is the great promise. This is what the Spirit is granting us. He convinces our hearts of sin and we repent and we see God. And purity becomes the guiding force for us. Blessed are the pure for they see God and those go hand in hand that are seeing God and experience Him and His holiness is that which draws us ever closer. It's like a moth being drawn to a great bright light. You know, we're drawn to that light not because of who we are but because of all that is offered there. And then the last two, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. And as Jesus came to make peace, he is the prince of peace. He came to reconcile the world to himself. So God has has called us as his children to take part in that. Again, it's which comes first. It's not that I become a peacemaker and then I'm called a child of God. No, it's in being called a child of God that I have a potential to be a peacemaker. Because when I am at peace with God, I have a potential to allow peace to happen among others that surround me. Because I have the confidence of my position. It's the same with the last. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Where does blessedness come in the midst of persecution? Because we are standing Because we are happy as those who oppose, those who oppose his kingdom. We are persecuted for righteousness. We are those who are standing for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are standing for his doctrine. We are standing for his truth. We are standing for his grace. We are saying it's his reputation that's at stake. And if you want to persecute me for that, then I will take that upon myself. We live in a world where there's a very fine line. You know, we're in days through all of what's happened through COVID, through freedom convoys, all these things where sometimes it gets very confusing about what people are standing for. When we stand and are persecuted for righteousness, Jesus is at the center of that. It's his reputation, and it's his truth, and it's his grace. And we stand for that when we are persecuted because of the, the kingdom, he says, you will find blessing. Why? Because it's then that you understand yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's where you belong. It's what your future is. It's where your hope is found. So Jesus begins this sermon by describing the people who come to know him in the depths of their heart and therefore live out of his character and life in this world. And those who do will know the deep hope and joy It comes from his presence. This is what it is to be a follower of Christ, to be a blessed people. Andrew, you and the team can come up. And today as we conclude our service, we're going to conclude it by taking this blessedness that we have in our hearts and in our lives, this understanding of what it is to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and taking a cup and a piece of bread, They were out on the table as you came in this morning. If you didn't pick one of these up and want to take part in communion, as we begin to sing, you're welcome to go out and pick up a a cup. This cup, of course, and what we do at the Lord's table is we consider our blessedness in Christ. We acknowledge that it came at a great price. The price, the gift of love, but the cost of the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a remembrance that he gave his body and his blood for us. That we might be brought into an eternal relationship, into eternal life with him. So it's a time for those that have accepted salvation. They've accepted the gift of grace through Jesus Christ to remember what has taken place for them. It is a declaration until he returns of that death and its power in our lives. We're told that we need to examine our hearts as we share in this moment. So that we come with pure hearts, and remember where pure hearts come from? It comes from confession, it comes from God's grace in our lives. So, as the team's going to play for us, and we'll take a few moments during a song to take communion, I invite you to examine your hearts, to come afresh before Christ, confessing Him as Savior, confessing your sin before Him, giving thanks for His salvation. That was accomplished through him giving his body for us, represented in the blood in the bread, and his blood being shed for the forgiveness of our sins. It's how Jesus described this table in Matthew's gospel. While they were eating at the last Passover, Jesus took the bread that was being given there, and he had given thanks, and he broke it before them and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat, for this is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of your sins. So over the next few minutes as the team leads in song, feel free to sing or feel free to reflect. But you take the bread and you take the cup in your time. And remember and give thanks, confessing your sin before him. And may as we do this in our hearts, may God solidify in our lives what it is to be his followers. That someone might one day said say of us, if I spend time with you, I will become a Christian. Because I see that all through your life.